You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing don't listen to this program? Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, got here. Even though the uh, traffic is all over the place because of uh, major events that are going on, maybe it's because it's the early hours. Of course, Melbourne is the epicentre of major events and this uh, part of the year seems to be going wild. At the moment, we've got uh, the uh, havoc down at uh, Albert Park, which is the uh, Formula One. And uh, for most people, that really just means that uh, the tram system on that side of this uh the city just refuses to do any of the normal stuff. It's all geared for people going to that particular event. Then, of course, and amazingly enough to me, that is an extremely popular event. The um, the worship of fast cars and uh, polluting uh, fuels. But anyway, by the by, uh, each to their own. Uh, the uh, other thing that's on, of course, is the... Uh, a great and wondrous uh, comedy festival, which happens every year. But uh, I have to give a plug to something I did last night, which was the Circus Royale. Believe it or not, it was a great show. I love a good circus and I was uh, able to go down there. It's uh, set up its tents beside the Palais in the, uh, it's called Lower Esplanade in St Gilda. And it was actually a mighty show. The kids and the adults there had a great time and it was full of mystery uh, feats and uh, all the things that circuses are renowned for. Uh, it, it is not an animal circus, of course. It's uh, a modern circus, but it was terrific. And if you uh, decide that that's uh, for you, you really should get a ticket because it was a great deal of fun. Uh, moving on to some um, kind of interesting news that I picked up that uh, stuck to my shoe besides uh, massive... Um, uh, what is it, uh, massive uh, demonstrations going on in Israel because of further assaults on their, uh, in inverted commas, democratic framework. This is going on in parallel to the murderous uh, attacks on um, uh, Palestinians uh, in the West Bank uh, by settlers, illegal settlers who are burning houses and all the rest of it. Um, that's a piece of news, of course. But uh, a, a, a bit of good news, in a sense, is that the Australian National University has told the National Tertiary Education Union and the ANU's Student Association it won't take up a controversial definition of anti-Semitism 
recently backed by the University of Melbourne, Monash and others. Uh, If you go back to uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, spoke to an academic at Wollongong University who directly affected uh, by uh, the broadening of a definition of anti-Semitism that uh, used um, examples, uh, seven out of 11 examples, uh, calling anti-Semitism attacks on the Israeli state, which uh, was um, appalling in his view. But uh, good on ANU, it has uh, uh, decided against uh, falling in line with Melbourne, Monash University and others. Uh, Another thing that's sort of interesting is that... uh, I get this really interesting uh, newsletter, a uh, Labor newsletter from uh, Grassroots, a uh, Labor newsletter from um, uh, America, and uh, they've been following what's been going on in um, Brazil uh, with the fall of Bolasaro. Uh, now, Bolasaro uh, fled to um, Orlando in America. And it appears that uh, Bolisaro's three-month-long exile in Orlando is finally coming to its end. Um, this was according to CNN Brazil. Bolisaro is flying out of Orlando uh, and arriving in Brasilia early, uh, earlier this week. It's been reporting that uh, Bolisaro is flying to Brazil via coach on a red eye. Lula, who's the president, forced Bolasaro's decision to return to Brazil earlier this month. Lula informed that Brazil would no longer pay for for Bolasaro's security detail as a former president if he stayed in the U.S. past the 31st. Bolasaro is likely to face prosecution for various crimes committed while he was president of Brazil. And the uh, newsletter Payday that I follow will give updates, which is quite fascinating when you consider the dynamic that's going on in uh, South America and the effects that uh, the push and pull of uh, the uh, dominance of um, the uh, neoliberal uh, project has right across the world. Uh, And, of course, how sensitive uh, uh, that is in places like South America, which is so close to the epicentre, which is uh, North America. Um, The... uh, a couple of events are coming up. If you're in Sydney, um, the unemployed Australian Unemployed Workers Union um, announced that uh, they're, they're wanting people to join um, the union and supporters in demanding Albanese um, do the right thing in the upcoming budget and raise the rate of unemployment benefits. And they're going to his office on Friday the 28th of April, 12pm. That's Albert Anthony Albanese's office in Merrickville. And they're asking people to come along. Um, sign up for the rally to raise the rate. You can go to their website. Um, closer to home, um, tomorrow, April the 2nd, annual Palm Sunday Rally for Refugees, one thirty or or two. I, I was given one thirty, but now on a poster I've received, it's uh, two state library steps. Uh, remember that the Newcastle Environment Camp is on April the fourteenth to the seventeenth, and I will put the link on the podcast. Uh, and uh, now I should give you a bit of a rundown of what we're going to do um, on the show. Uh, 
you will remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, and you it's probably entered your consciousness that uh, big oil companies have been having eye-watering profits. Um, ExxonMobil alone reported a net profit of $56 billion for 2022, setting a historic high for the Western oil industry. Shell announced the biggest profits in the company's 115-year history, and BP celebrated record profits while scaling back their climate change plans. And together, the five Big Five raked in unimaginable profits of $195 billion during 2022. And it is these very companies that are responsible for over four times the emissions than the least polluting 150 companies, countries combined. Now, last week in Australia, uh, the, uh, the Greens and Labor agreed to strong changes to the safeguard mechanism polluters law which is going to have an effect on uh, trying to control Australia's emissions. Now the background of course is that uh, the big oil companies around the world uh, refuse to actually accept their responsibility and uh, they probably need a sign around their neck saying environmental terrorists but uh, closer to home uh, Australia is uh, taking steps to try and use parliamentary mechanisms, legislation, to try and control our um, processes. Uh, and GetUp, which has uh, been, um, uh, what is it, uh, challenging the uh, effects of fracking in Northern Territory, for example, especially on the grounds of... Uh, 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 indigenous rights, uh, uh, climate and nation, First Nations justice uh, have said that uh, they believe that this, these changes that Greens and the Labor have put, uh, agreed on uh, should uh, put restrictions for fracking in the Betterloo Basin, which is a massive blow to the already shoddy business case of frackers like Tambaran Resources. They see this as a, a, a positive thing. So what I did was go and have a chat with uh, Graham Madfazen, Australian Conservation Foundation Climate Change and Clean Program Manager. I'd love to see that on someone's door. Uh, about what the ACF thinks about this particular um, agreement and if it's enough effectively. So that's what we're going to do first up. We're going to follow that by talking to Dr. Jarrah Hicks. She is a person who's part of the Save the Bulgar Old Growth Forest and you might remember that I chatted with uh, the Bulgar, Save the Bulgar Forest before the New South Wales election. And um, these, uh, there is a, uh, a suspension on uh, the uh, logging of the Bulga Forest um, and so since the election. So I'm going to have a talk to uh, Dr. Jarrow Hicks to find out what the state of play is. Now, the reason for why this is important is because they've decided that they're going to dismantle their... The activists are dismantling their camp. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're going to find out what they believe needs to be done in order to protect the, the old-growth forest uh, since the activist phase, the election, and although the Labor government 
has not actually given any um, uh, protection orders for the old growth forest or any of the other uh, threatened areas on state land in New South Wales. And it's at a a, a very, very dangerous um, impasse at the moment. So we'll find out a little bit more about that. And Kevin... Kevin's back. This is the week that was. And we're going to catch up with Don Sutherland because the annual wage review is is uh, has been uh, looked at. Uh, and interestingly enough, because the annual wage review, of course, is about the rate of pay for the set for the lowest paid workers in Australia, with everything else that's been going on, all the... Uh, 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 nitty gritty of how the country operates for real people on the ground um, seems to be being lost in the wash. Oh, and before we continue, I have to make a do a plug. I have to tell you something interesting. Uh, not that I'm completely rambling or anything, but uh, the CFMEU has called a national rally for April the fifth in Victoria. Uh, <clears throat> In uh, Melbourne, it's going to uh, gather outside Trades Hall at 10 10 a.m. That's on April the 5th. And it's in relation to um, uh, the state of uh, wages and conditions in relation to increased wages, uh, um, prices pressure. And it's leading into their EBA negotiations. I thought you might find that interesting. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Strengthening mechanism, a critical start, but not the final word. This is from the Australian Conservation Foundation. And I caught up with Gavin McFadden, Australian Conservation Foundation Climate Change and Clean Project Manager for why they believe this to be so. Can you tell my listeners what the Greens leader, Adam Band, actually agreed with uh, Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen about when they uh, were dealing with strengthening a mechanism to uh, stop uh, increasing our emissions? Yes, well, I mean, we congratulate all the parties that engaged with um, improving the safeguard mechanism. The original design introduced by Minister Bowen was um, deficient. It fell far short of what we needed to see. And, of course, I mean, the first point to make is the coalition didn't even engage with trying to strengthen or even be involved in negotiating stronger climate policy at a federal level. So it was left to the Greens and the crossbench to work with Labor to try to get um, this done. And over the past few months, um, the safeguard mechanism proposed by Labor, um, this was originally a policy of the Abbott government, was introduced in 2016. Labor made an election commitment to improve it. And then the parliament worked over the last couple of months 
uh, to strengthen it so that it could pass through the Senate and become law yesterday. Um, some of the key improvements are that um, the cap uh, that um, facilities or businesses, uh, about 215 of them across the nation, um, the biggest polluting facilities in the country, they now have to meet an absolute emissions cap, um, which they can't do just by offsets. They have to reduce their emissions on site, uh, and that's a strong uh, and welcome improvement on the original design, which was going to be a net cap, which meant that facilities could just meet their emissions reduction targets um, to stay under the baseline through offsets like tree planting. Now they have to do an absolute emissions cap. Um, we saw some a stronger scrutiny and attention to methane emissions, and we know that methane is a much stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. Um, we've had a lot of trouble properly uh, monitoring and verifying the methane emissions from gas and coal projects, and now there'll be stronger scrutiny uh, on methane. Um, there'll be a stronger role for the Climate Change Authority uh, in its reporting, uh, greater scrutiny of how the safeguard is progressing towards Australia meeting its emissions reduction targets, 43% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Um, so a stronger and more transparent role by the Independent Climate Change Authority. And probably the other big outcome was that we saw um, a significant reduction um, in the ability for governments to uh, subsidise or give taxpayer funds to uh, the coal and gas industry in Australia. So um, the National Reconstruction Fund, the Powering the Regions Fund um, and some other legislation uh, was changed to make sure that now public money was no longer available to the fossil fuel sector. They still have access to the diesel fuel rebate, but significant uh, avenues that in particular the previous government was using uh, to reduce... Uh, sorry, the previous government was using to uh, fund fossil fuel projects with public money have now been blocked under this uh, under this legislation, which is excellent. Yeah, which means that they'll have to use private funding if they're going to... Uh... That's an option, obviously. That's obviously an option. And so, um, as I said, there's still the diesel fuel rebate, which is a significant subsidy to the mining sector in Australia. About, I think it was about $8 billion last year. But um, slowly but surely, this government is getting public funding for the fossil fuel sector under control, and it's slipping that funding to the renewable sector. So the Powering the Regions Fund, for example, in this package has allocated uh, another $400 million um, to decarbonise, uh, to decarbonisation efforts and uh, increasing renewables in the system to help some of those high emitting sectors that aren't coal and gas, so like cement or aluminium refinery, uh, alumina refinery and so forth, getting the emissions from those sectors down. Now, it's interesting, this... Uh, these terminology there's lots of terminology involved in all this um, pollution trigger and carbon budget explain that to my listeners uh, well now there's a carbon budget so the the what the safeguard will do uh, is reduce emissions from the 215 most polluting facilities in the nation by 4.9% on average between now and 2030. If companies can't get their facilities below that cap, um, they will need to um, purchase safeguard mechanism credits, so like carbon credits, 
uh, to stay to stay beneath that baseline, so you can engage in the carbon market. So if you're below um, your baseline, you'll be able to sell carbon credits into the market to a facility that can't get its emissions below its baseline. So it's basically a carbon trading scheme. And if that fails, you can access offsets, um, such as from um, tree planting, waste management, avoided deforestation, and so forth. Um, so that's how you'll stay below cap in order for Australia to meet a 43% by 2030 target. The budget just refers to the emissions, the um, the the emissions budget, the CO2 and methane budget that we have and how we need to reduce that over time between now and 2030 and then net zero by 2050. There is a lot of jargon. Um, sorry about that, but the climate debate tends to have a fair bit of that. So it is a bit of work to explain it to the public in a way um, that people can understand. Uh, but it really what it is is, uh, is resembling or... Uh dressing in capitalist terms that's what they're doing that's what's happening here it's, it's dressing up as a capitalist um, industry um, performance model isn't it um, well what it's doing is it, it's the key policy for Australia to meet its emissions reduction target by by 2030, especially that 43% target. I mean, we'd like to see that increase, obviously, in line with a 1.5 degree pathway. That's what the science says we need uh, for a safe climate, and that means our 2030 target would need to be a lot higher than 43%. It would need to be double that, in fact. Um, uh, and we look forward to working with the federal government and the parliament. Um, to look at Australia introducing a far more ambitious 2035 emissions reduction target um, later on next year. And then that means that uh, more strict and more, you know, I guess more ambitious baselines will be placed on these companies uh, beyond 2030 to get Australia's emissions down as quickly as possible so we've got the best chance of maintaining a safe climate in this country. So do you think that uh, it's actually possible uh, under this sort of arrangement for um, there to reduce Australia's reliance on gas and coal? Uh, well, yes, it will do that. I mean, Australia's now got a commitment to be 82% renewable energy by 2030. Um, and this government, uh, this Labor government is full steam ahead in trying to achieve that. Um, and the safeguard, while it reduces in mostly emissions from industry, uh, it will have a significant impact on the coal and gas sector. About 57% of the emissions uh, covered by the safeguard are from coal and gas. Um, what we need to see, though, from this federal government and where it continues to fall short is in dealing with Australia's exported emissions. So this, this policy relates to Australia's domestic emissions, what we call Scope 1 emissions on site, but it doesn't deal with what we call Scope 3 emissions, which are emissions caused by Australia's coal and gas exports when that coal and gas is burnt overseas. Australia's the third biggest uh, energy exporter uh, on the planet um, and this policy does nothing to curb Australia's coal and gas exports. So what we need to really pressure the Australian government to do now um, is realise Australia's opportunity to remain an energy export superpower, but for that to be in clean energy and clean manufactured products as it needs to phase out of coal and gas, not just for our domestic energy needs, 
but for our exports as well. Because most people are pretty concerned, actually, about the concept of new or expanding projects. So, for example, the Artesian Basin being sacrificed for a gas project. Uh, it just doesn't seem to add up to people in general. Well, one of the things we hope now the safeguard mechanism will do, um, because there is now a hard cap, there's a cap on absolute emissions, on gross emissions, is that uh, many of the, perhaps as many as half of the 116 coal and gas projects currently on the books at various stages in their approvals processes uh, will not go ahead because they simply won't be able to be accommodated uh, under the cap or under Australia's carbon budget. So we'll see when the rubber hits the road with this policy, the impact it will have on projects. But now, uh, as projects go through their approvals processes, um, they will trigger an approval under our environment laws, which we call the EPBC Act, the Environment, Biodiversity, Protection and Conservation Act. And um, the emissions impact of new projects will need to be assessed against those laws to see if they can go ahead while retaining uh, Australia's trajectory to meet its 43% by 2030 target. Um, it's pretty clear that there is no way all of those projects can go ahead and for Australia to stay under that um, carbon budget, under that cap. So we'll wait and see how many coal and gas projects uh, cannot proceed as a result of this uh, policy. All right, so the next thing is... Uh you're pretty confident, or the ACF are quite confident about the uh, potential for um, clean energy production within Australia. Do you want to give my listeners some idea of what you're talking about? Well, Australia is lucky enough to be probably the best country in the world for coal. Uh, sorry, for best country in the world when it comes to renewable energy, uh, both wind and solar power, and also emerging technologies around pumped hydro, um, uh, tidal and wave power as well. But when it comes to wind and solar, there's no country on earth better endowed than Australia. We've got excellent wind and solar resources and plenty of land um, to put these new projects on. I mean, these new projects also need to be done in an environmentally sustainable way. Even big renewable energy projects have an environmental impact, and we need to make sure that local communities, First Nations communities, um, and also um, natural and cultural values are protected when we build these large projects. But um, Australia is very well endowed not just to meet our domestic energy needs by renewables, but to export renewable energy uh, to energy-hungry Asian markets, which may need to import renewable energy in order to meet their own emissions reduction targets and energy needs. So... Um, we're urging the federal government to bring into place an export strategy for renewable energy so Australia can harness this potential and not only decarbonise our economy, but help uh, energy-hungry Asian markets uh, in our region to also decarbonise using Australian renewable energy, green hydrogen and other green manufactured project, uh, products like green steel green aluminium and so forth. So so you have quite, uh, quite a, a lot of confidence in the battery technology that would allow um, some of this energy to actually be transferred, is it? Well, at a household level, batteries are now up and running, as people know. Some listeners may even already have them in their homes, some big battery projects which are getting bigger and more efficient, 
um, technology is moving really rapidly um, in this space. So uh, energy storage uh, via battery technology, uh, but also pumped hydro technology um, is continually evolving. The price is coming down. Their ability to store large amounts of energy for a long period is improving. Um, and so, you know, technology in some respects is our friend when it comes to the clean energy transition. Um, and energy storage is a key plank uh, in being able to do that, not just for households, but for uh, for industry as well. But to, to export energy, you're talking about green hydrogen and other types of product, right? Potential for uh, green hydrogen and ammonia, but we're also talking about direct renewable energy export. So actually running seabed cables, deploying renewable energy from Australia into nearby Southeast Asian uh, markets. And we're also talking about renewable products like green steel, uh, green aluminium um, and so forth. And the other thing I wanted to know is that you have great confidence, your organisation has co great confidence in the um, economic system that, that we have, uh, you know, large um, large corporate sort of entities who will deal with this sort of stuff as opposed to decentralisation that uh, is potentially uh, a component of um, sustainable energy. You think the model? Works. Well, one of the well, I, I, there needs to be significant improvements to the economic models that are enabling, I guess, this transition. We've still got an economic system that heavily prioritises coal and gas over renewable energy, and that needs, to, although that's changing, and needs to continue um, to change. But with the clean energy revolution, we're seeing already seeing a significant decentralisation in our energy system. We're going from very large, um, mostly coal-fired power stations to a much more decentralised model where even households are producing their uh, own energy through their solar power and in many cases deploying excess energy from their houses back into the grid. Um, we're seeing significant government and private sector investment in community energy hubs for renters, for low-income households, um, and for regional communities running off their own renewable energy. So what's happening with this clean energy revolution is a significant decentralisation um, of our uh, energy system. And that's why we need to see such large investment in transmission. So we're seeing a um, significant investment in new transmission infrastructure because of this significant decentralisation that's occurring in the energy system um, away from big companies and big projects towards a much more decentralised model. And that's happening already as we speak. Hmm. That's, uh, what do you reckon the time frame is going to be for this? I mean, because it's a battle, isn't it? I mean, when you look at things like um, the enormous amounts of profits that are coming to places, people like Shell and other, you know, you know, coming out of the Ukrainian war and that sort of stuff, uh, where they no longer, and BP, all of them, where they, they no longer feel that they need to get public funding in any way because they're rolling in funds. Um, are we, is it a race against time, against this sort of mentality and sustainable uh, environmental care? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we lost over 10 years um, under previous coalition governments 
um, under Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison and Malcolm Turnbull, we had over a decade of absent climate policy and energy policy in Australia. And so um, we're rapidly trying to make up for that lost decade, for that lost time. We're still way behind the eight ball in Australia when it comes to the clean energy transition we need. We're also way behind the eight ball when it comes to things like energy efficiency and the way we build our houses, um, commercial buildings and towns. We're way behind the eight ball when it comes to the need to reduce transport emissions. We're nowhere near where we should be in terms of the uptake of electric vehicles, having more electric vehicles on the market and enabling charging for electric vehicles. Um, so... Um, the safeguard mechanism is a major step forward when it comes to reducing industrial emissions, but we've got a lot of work catching up to do when it comes to reforming our energy system, our transport system, um, the way we build our cities and towns um, to electrify the Australian economy so that we can use renewable energy to do that um, instead of coal and gas. And then, as I said, that doesn't even touch on our exports and we rap rapidly need to um, transition Australia from dirty to clean uh, exports. And as we know, the climate crisis is well upon us. People are seeing the impacts of more extreme and unpredictable weather. Australia is one of the most affected countries in the world by climate change. And so um, we haven't got a moment to lose in facilitating um, that clean energy transition from which then we can electrify the rest of the Australian economy and decarbonise our exports as well. Um, in order to maintain a safe climate, um, which is global average temperatures staying below 1.5 degrees, we've got a lot of work to do uh, just the next few years. This really is the critical decade in order to ensure that we have a safe climate moving forward. And that was uh, Gavin McFazen, Australian Conservation Foundation Climate Change and Clean, Clean Project Manager, and we were having a chat about uh, following the Greens and Labor's agreement on strong changes to the safeguard mechanisms, polluter laws. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station, and we've got Dr Jarrah Hicks on the line. G'day, Jarrah, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Annie. Yeah. Now, uh, Jarrod, the reason why we've uh, got in contact with you is because after the New South Wales election, it may be um, a reason for why, but uh, you've discovered that the Forestry Corporation in New South Wales has now moved the Bulga Forest from active to suspended. Uh, I found it interesting that uh, you have to find it on the uh, website. Uh, you obviously keep your eyes peeled because they don't actually tell anybody any other way. 
yeah, that's right. You have to be pretty on the ball to know what's going on in the forest out here. And so it does take us being, you know, active, doing a lot of active citizen science in our backyard to, to know what they're up to and, of course, keeping our eye on the website. But we didn't get a courtesy call <laughs> to, to let us know. No. But uh, you've been uh, Save Bulga Forest, uh, which, uh, for my listeners, is near Port Macquarie in New South Wales uh, and threatened by uh, the uh, longest-running old-growth forest sawmill in New South Wales, correct? I believe so, yep. It's an extraordinary idea that uh, uh, old-growth forest is still being um, milled, right? Yeah, it it is really concerning to us. And the area that they moved into log that, that really got our campaign going late last year is an area of native forest with a lot of very old trees in it. Um, and those trees, of course, are home to so many creatures. And we know that there's a lot of creatures in that forest who are endangered or threatened, including koalas. Um, and so really it just seems like insanity to us that we would be logging that forest and, and logging it with state resources and with, with state money. The Forestry Corporation of New South Wales runs at a loss every year and it's taxpayers that fund that loss. Um, and so, you know, we really need to sit back at this juncture where we know and we've received just very recently from the IPCC the starkest warning yet that life as we know it is, is really threatened um, and that one of the best things we can do is to protect existing native ecosystems. Uh, the uh, one of the fundamental misunderstandings appears to be in a policy sense is that uh, we've had devastating fires, um, uh, and uh, the push has been to do uh, you know to control the situation is to do more bur- you know uh, uh, burning burning burn offs and stuff like that. But in actual fact. The science is already in that um, large trees are the ones that actually keep the environment sustainable and fireproof. It's true that really established native forests play a really important role in regulating our temperature and in regulating water flows through the ecosystem. Old forests have a lot more um, you know, soil structure and they're able to retain a lot more moisture. Um, but they also, surprisingly, also let a lot of the more water flow through than a young forest. The young forest drinks up more, more of the water. So old um, established native forest plays an amazing role in regulating both water and temperature. Uh, and, and certainly the, fire, the response to fire in, in areas with established native forest is very different. The, um, y- your uh, group has been... Um, uh, keeping watch and, um, you know, campaigning uh, from the camp at Allensborough Falls Reserve in Allens for three months. Uh, And and, uh, after the election, a decision was made, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So we we set up a camp, um, and that was the, the headquarters of our activity where we were both... We were doing a lot of citizen science, and we were really watching... Um, what the logging was doing, and we were putting pressure on forestry to cease its operations in the areas of native forest. Uh, we were successful in that venture, um, and they were only able to do two days of logging over a whole four-month period because of our presence. Um, they, they moved to to log an area of 
plantation in a different part of the forest. But our camp was really, um, it's in a, in a place where we get a lot of tourism. Ellenborough Falls is a major tourist attraction in our region. And we put it there because we wanted that visibility, but we also wanted it to be really accessible and really family-friendly. And we had, we had a lot of talks, you know, um, about the ecology, uh, about the geology of the area, about bush tucker. Um, we had a lot of craft like craftivism activities so people could come and, and, and make something. We had a lot of activities aimed at children. So it was really um, uh, quite a vibrant and, and a welcoming space to be, and we had a number of people camping there for, for the last three months. So did you find that uh, the people who you who came and talked with you and all the rest of it and joined the camp uh, learnt a lot uh, that, that they didn't know about uh, old-growth forests? I, I, I would say so. Like, a lot of the people we speak to are really actually shocked and horrified that we would still be logging old, established native forests. People often assume that our logging practices have kept up with the science um, and that, you know, it's only plantations that are being logged and they're using, um, using methods like single tree selection. <clears throat> but in our area, that's really not the case. Um, they were literally clearing back to their earth, oh, clearing God. absolutely everything in massive ways in areas of native forest. And yeah, for me, it's that's crazy. just shocking. And a lot of people were, were shocked that that's still practice that our government supports. And so it's practices like that that we're still campaigning against. Although our campaign, our um, blockade camp is having a rest, we are, as a group, as Save Bog Forest, we're still lobbying. We're, we're going to work hard with the new government to protect native forests um, and to change forestry practices. We think that now is a good time for us to really review, in light of the science, um, particularly in light of the climate science, how do we, how do we, how do we approach this industry? Um, you know, I think we, we really need to have a hard look at that. And, and recognise that um, there, are, there are some sustainable ways to harvest forest timber, but it's not logging native forests. Thanks for talking to us today, Jarrah. My pleasure. This is a song and story about the Murray River. It's about the past, the present and the future. And my people who have survived for thousands of years alongside her. As a community, we've got to help her flow for another thousand years. This is an original song written by Shane Lovett and myself, Sonny Wise. I'll let the song take you there and give you our message. A memory of his childhood On the river banks And life back there was so good And the water he drank He'd swim in the waters And swim to the other side Barker G's sons and daughters Barker G River tribe Many tribes, lots of families, river tribes. 
We let you drink it, swim in our waters and you drained it away. The river was mighty, the water was strong, but she's dying today. You know you were wrong, you know you were guilty, but you don't say. You gotta stop blocking them rivers, let them flow today. Oh yeah, let them flow today. And now that he's a grown man Standing on the river's edge Looking down at the muddy waters Wondering what was in your head Why'd you break her spirit? Why'd you take her flow away? Her beautiful shine and sparkle Is dying today Can we help? What can we do? How can we help? We let you drink it, swim in our waters and you drained it away. The river was mighty, the water was strong, but she's dying today. You know you were wrong, you know you are guilty, but you don't say. You gotta stop. Blocking them rivers Let them flow today Oh yeah Let them flow today We let you drink it We swim in our waters And you drained it away The river was mighty The water was strong, but she's dying today You know you were wrong, you know you were guilty, but you don't say You gotta stop blocking them rivers Let them flow today Oh yeah, let them flow today Let them flow today Let him flow today. You're listening to eight five five AM. The last one is called Lucky Country, and uh, while I wrote it, I wrote it because of reconciliation, and I hear a lot of non-Indigenous people say how lucky they are to be brought up in this country. Peace to you too, brother. And so, this one is called Lucky Country. It's the last one, okay? Go on.
country. Where do they come from? Are they Australians? Or are they Poms? What did they bring here? What do they speak? Do they speak English? Or do they speak Greek? They bring trouble. They bring guns. Shoot your dead. You're nothing but a bum. They say you're no hooper. You're no good. You're just nothing. You're just a boom. Where can we go? Where can we stay? Stand up and fight. Kneel down and pray. We have to do something. We have to, together. We can't do it alone. We can make it better. So come on, you people. Let's come as one. Bring all your family, children, dad and mom. Bring all your friends. Bring all your relations. This is what we call reconciliation. Thank you very much, and you all have a great afternoon, okay? Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A week's solidarity, Becky Team Lister, when years of inactivity on climate change, if there is such a thing, will be replaced by years of activity so effective the legislation has received rave reviews from the sundry chambers of prophets and the great fossil behemoths themselves, who say they can live with it even if the planet can't. And let me clarify that years of inactivity bit, because I can hear you saying, but they were years of activity by the great fossils and the sundry chambers of profits making sure the fossils did their bit for climate change if there is such a thing. And now the great fossils tell us they must continue to explore for, extract, export and burn fossils which we've discovered are a critical element of transitioning from exploring for, extracting, exporting and burning. Oh, and it is imperative that the government compensate them for transitioning because without the proper tax arrangements and corporate welfare, the poor fossils can't afford to transition. Although, why they keep mentioning tax alludes? Because it's not like they pay any in the first place. Essential welfare, obviously, for amid headline after headline announcing record profits for the coal giants, headline this week, coal shift needs government funds. And it must break their hearts to know that if those government funds are not forthcoming, which they are, the government regularly announces it will compensate the fossils for not fossiling quite as much. But for the sake of, 
without them they just have to be forced to keep up with the business as usual of exploring, extracting, exporting and burning which they intend to anyway, while preserving the environment by the tried and true, untried and untrue panacea of burying your head in the sand, sequestration, carbon capture and storage, and just a touch of bad luck, three juxtaposition stories this week. An article by Samantha McCulloch, real name, Suprema of the True Blue Aussie Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, of how excited she was visiting Chev Got It Wrong's gas plant on ecologically fragile Barrow Island off western True Blue Aussie. Home to the world's largest carbon dioxide storage site, a glimpse into a new growth industry that is critical to True Blue Aussie reaching net zero. And we need to send a clear signal to our neighbours that True Blue Aussie is open for the business of burying their heads in the sand. But the touch of bad luck? Same week as Denmark announced a plan to bury its CO2 in the North Sea, an energy analyst, Bruce Robertson, countered, while several recent projects have focused on the climate benefits of storing carbon underground, these have been largely unsuccessful. And then to rub salt into poor Samantha's wounds, the project in Trublawazi, driven by industry majors such as Chev Got It Wrong, Shell Pollute, Hex on the Planet, who attract the best petroleum engineers in the world, and they can't get this project to work. It's underperforming pretty radically. But, 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 but that's the very success story that had poor Samantha near orgasmic. And to compound the blow, Trublawazi Capitalist Review headline, Shed Got It Wrong Gas Plant Limps to a Restart. The Barrow Island plant was approved on the guarantee the CO2 not being buried would be buried, despite a prominent academic geologist at the time pointing out the geology was so porous that even if they managed to bury it, it would just pop back out again. <clears throat> Still, they try to do their bit for the environment, and it's just too uneconomical to abide by their approval conditions. Consistency and sincerity, of course, dominate on this issue. Like US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Joe Biden Capital, a Biden Capital, by announcing a huge fund for renewable projects, then approving a $12 billion Conamco Phillips the Atmosphere Oil Project in Alaska, giving the finger to long-haired commie greeny wooden worker and iron protesters who claim ludicrously it would be one of the largest oil and gas projects on public land. We are too late in the climate crisis to approve new oil and gas projects, they complained. Well, obviously not. And anyway, Conum Co. Phillips, the atmosphere echoing our own true blue Aussie fossils, pointed out this was a breakthrough for the environment. It fits with the Biden Capitals administration's priorities on environmental and social justice, facilitating the energy transition and enhancing our energy security, all while uh, creating union jobs and providing benefits to Alaskan Native communities. Yeah, like our own first people have benefited so magnificently from the fossils here. And they said that with a straight face. 
timely warning to lazy, avaricious lobbyists of the low-paid workers and evil unions from the economically wise, filthiest rich of the filthy rich, that giving the lowest of more money to counter inflation would make inflation worse and be bad for, hurt those workers, showing the filthiest rich of have nothing but those workers' interests at heart. And we know what big hearts they have. In a world of spiralling costs in which we have no choice but to spiral costs, it would be economic disaster if the cost of labour also increased. Uh, but, but, but all other costs are rising. Uh, shouldn't the cost of labour also rise? It's, it's just another price for a product in an inflationary environment. Oh dear, how naive. Don't you care about inflation? But you keep saying you would love it into slow wage growth. Absolutely, it's our greatest wish, our dearest wish, but not when it would hurt a fragile economy facing headwinds, and obviously without productivity trade-offs. Headwinds are a big problem for the filthiest rich of. Every time they announce record profits, they point out that there are headwinds they will face in the next year just in case those lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions think the record profits just may preface a chance to address slow wage growth. That threat of a wage price caring business class price spiral that more money would make workers worse off must explain why so many caring employers show that care for those workers by giving them less and less as they strive to make those workers better off like beauty giant Mecca Cosmetics, which moved thousands of those lucky, lucky workers off expired agreements, allowing them not to pay penalty rates for 17 years. Certainly Mecca for Mecca. Or, let's make it clear, done inadvertently. And Dumpling Empire Tin Tai Fung, real name, also went out of its way to ensure its lucky, lucky workers didn't contribute to inflation by underpaying them and constructing false wage records to conceal its big-heartedness. Totally inadvertent underpayment and concealment, meaning we must criticise the federal court big who, How's this for misjudging a decent, caring employer who said the contravening conduct was not isolated, ad hoc, or inadvertent? Shame, Your Honour, shame. Thankfully, the huge fines Din Tai Fung would face have been circumvented by going into liquidation and reopening under a new entity run by a former director while the owner has fled the country. Put to all that trouble just for attempting to do its bit to control inflation. One of what must be a series of downsides to being a serial bridegroom struck Paul Lord Rupert of Wapping this week as he announced he would be celebrating yet another engagement to yet another decades younger woman who must find filthy rich nonagenarians just so attractive. In that case, over Lord Rupert's empire's maintaining I was robbed, rubbish, post the US of election and other slight editorial inaccuracies. His lawyers argued at his age it would be too burdensome for poor Lord Rupert to travel and give evidence. And just a bit of bad luck, the same media was reporting it Supremo, old lover boy himself, would be travelling all over the place whooping it up with his new love, eliciting from his honour 
that doesn't sound like someone who can't go from New York to Wilmington. Let's get the story straight on these types of things. Which, getting the story straight, is of course what the trial's all about. Anyway, the week that was, wishes the happy couple well. In his usual caring way, Lord Rupert jettisons his previous wife by email. So he recommend his due love ignore them. Actually, she continues to be the business of Lord Rupert's empire here, like telling us its very favourite politician, state big supremo, the pejorative Dan, was on a secret trip to China, to evil China. <clears throat> Indicating for once his dedicated team somehow missed that the pejorative Dan had called a press conference a day earlier to announce he was going to China. Indicating... Um, <laughs> They must have misplaced the invite. In another court, in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country, His Most Gracious son, train-killing, loving Harry, turned up in a defamation case and told the bench he had, never, he had been raised to never explain, never complain. Huh? Got a feeling he stopped that lesson up. Then again, inbreeding can be a problem. We all recall fondly Harry having fun, fun, fun in his Nazi uniform, which makes it difficult to believe that the true Belozzi trained killer lot have discovered there are neo-Nazis and Nazi sympathisers in its ranks. Who would have thought an occupation dedicated to killing people would attract people who love killing people? And this amid silly suggestions that our state, sorry, our police, go out of their way to protect neo-Nazis from dangerous long-haired commie greenies. Who would have thought? The state-caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo John Piss on You Too entered a party meeting insisting anti-trans activist Moira Damning Sin must be expelled and exited, explaining the fact that she wasn't expelled showed what a strong leader he is which doesn't say just heaps about piss on you too, it says heaps about all of them. Finally, as we berate that judge for attacking a poor, caring employer, more injustice in the US of our very, very close friend, as former Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor was forced to declare long-haired, greeny, commie America greats again. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Kevin. And uh, you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. Good. Uh, 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 the names are becoming more and more uh, outrageous, really, aren't they? Um, well, they are indeed. And, <laughs> John, uh, piss on you. <laughs> beg your pardon? Oh, one of the names, John, piss on you. <laughs> <laughs> they are indeed. I mean... I, I always wonder, uh, and g'day to all of your listeners as well, Annie, and uh, I always wonder just, well, what, how am I going to say anything that really uh, pushes the boundary beyond uh, where Kevin takes us? And uh, all power to him. Uh, and to us, of course. Well, the annual wage review, I know this is one of the things that uh, you particularly are interested in, of course, and so are all the lowest paid workers in Australia. But uh, it appears that uh, the rest of uh, the media landscape uh, uh, is not interested. Um, well, I think um, uh, what we're learning at the moment is that uh, 
they are getting very interested because the submissions have now been lodged as of yesterday. And uh, so uh, the employer organisations and their, the majority of media organisations who support their understanding of how the economy works, they are now getting into a lather about the ACTU claim. Hello? Yep, 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 yep. Tell us yeah. about the claim. What are so, they claiming? So there, is, there is sort of, I don't know how long it'll last, but there is a bit of an uptick in how much it's being talked about. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, just the most important thing about the uh, annual wage review is that, it is that alongside of the Commonwealth budget, it is the single most important decision that shapes the living standards of low-income workers and their families. And it is in no way treated seriously enough in our society, in the mainstream media. And I am also going to say in our own union movement, it is an incredibly important decision. Of course, the way in which the process is all set up through the Fair Work Act is dominated by broken rules. But that's uh, that's no excuse for allowing it to be so, treated so superficially. I can understand that from the point of view of employers and their champions. But I do not think it is good enough from our union movement. And we can see why when we talk about it a little bit more. Um, this this year's annual wage review, uh, and I should emphasise for listeners that the annual wage review, the processes are governed by sections of the Fair Work Act uh, uh, produced during the period of the Rudd-Gillard governments in 2009 and also amended a couple of times, including late last year with the Secure Pay Better Jobs Bill. Hmm. Now, this will be the very first annual wage review in which gender equality and job security are required considerations for the Fair Work Commission panel that sits in judgment on what the increase should be. So this is a very this has a very different feature, adds a very different feature to the annual wage review what it's going to do about gender equality, and secondly, of course, what it is that the parties who put in submissions to the panel will recommend that are relevant to this new, especially the gender equality objective of the review. Okay, um, so how are they going to look at that? We're... Uh, obviously, in feminised industries, uh, there's always been a re- uh, very, uh, you know, uh, low uh, wages, that sort of stuff. It, it seems to be the the lot of women that they have to carry the load of a uh, incompetent system. Um, uh, what has the ACTU uh, got in its submission? Well. Uh the submission is 194 pages, and I've only just starting. Uh, I've just been reading through some of the 
most obvious things. And uh, so at this stage, it's um, you know this is my first go at it, my first impression. Okay. The ACTU's claim is set for a seven percent increase. Right. And in its submission, it seeks to prove that this will have a positive impact on uh, for all workers, but especially for work and w- working women who dominate what are called the award-reliant industries. Now, without getting too technical, award-reliant industries are those industries in which enterprise bargaining is not a powerful feature. Yeah, places that don't have EBAs. but, But it's not a powerful feature. And so pay levels are defined by whatever industry award applies to the workers in those industries. And there are a set of industries in which the majority of workers are women that are as we say, award-reliant. Now, so the annual wage review increase, if there is an increase, as there usually is of some sort, um, uh, the annual wage increase applies to those workers who are on the direct award rate for the job they do in the industry they work in. Now, there's a second group of workers most of them women in those award-reliant industries who are also indirectly affected. And I haven't yet... There is a lot of new... It seems to me as though it's new and updated data about the position of women, uh, workers generally, but uh, particularly of women, uh, new, more accurate information about how many workers are affected. Mm Mm-hmm. I haven't got my head around it entirely, but it's clearly new and more powerful evidence to support uh, a wage increase that reduces the gender pay gap. Okay. Um, the, uh, there is the second category of workers who get $1 or $2 or 50 cents or something like that above the official award rate. Now, they also usually, usually are able to get a marginal increase on that slightly above the award rate because of the annual wage review decision. Now, they are normally not counted as being affected by the annual wage review, Mm. but they almost certainly are. And there are literally, I would say there are probably one to two million workers in that sort of grouping. Are you saying that uh, in that grouping, they're, they're paid a little bit more, therefore they're not part of the lowest paid, therefore they don't get the extras? Well, they are definitely part of the lowest paid, but officially yeah, they're, they're not. not counted as award reliant. Yeah, yeah, and so therefore that's a, that's a rather sneaky way of uh, uh, not um, increasing their wages, isn't it? Yeah, it is sneaky unless you latch onto it. Yeah. And my impression, my first impression, is that this year's submission from the Australian Council of Trade Unions on behalf of all workers is trying to do that. Mm. That's my first impression. Yeah, well, that's interesting. They've obviously really thought this through. Um, 7% is not... uh, 
in line with inflation, though, is it? Well, it depends on the measure of inflation. The ACTU says that uh, they're taking into account that the quarterly inflation rate appears to be 7.4% and the monthly is 68 So they've sort of got, you know... But, but whichever got, way you look at it, it's not an increase. Got, it's not no, an increase. Uh, whichever way you look at it, it's not an increase. It's standing still. It, it's standing still um, at the very best. That's right. That's correct. And therefore, there is only a catch-up element if inflation falls. Yeah, that's right. All right. Now, the ACTU agrees with other mainstream commentators that inflation is going to fall. We don't know how much, and sort of, and I think there's a question mark over that anyway. Because yeah, yeah, I agree. In other parts of the world, but um, we'll see. Uh, so their approach to catch up is not direct. They, they, it's a seven percent claim, uh, which says that catch up will only happen if inflation falls. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So um, what, what's our What's our best friend, um, uh, McInnes, or whatever his name is, from the um, uh, business lobby, uh, got to say? What are they, what's the business lobby, uh, commerce, uh, Chamber of Commerce and all those characters? What, have they, what are their um, offer? What do they think should happen? Well, there's a range of submissions, and uh, one of the employer, big employer organisations is seeking 3.5%, uh, <laughs> yeah, which, right. of course, is another another real wage cut. The Probably the most, usually the most empl- uh, significant employer submission is from the Australian Industry Group. Yeah, that um, one. And their spokesperson is Innes Willocks. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't remember his name. I, I, I He's just... Um, he lives in my um, mind as uh, uh, the horror at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, they they are not they are not specifying an amount, but it was noticeable that in the hour or so after the uh, ACTU lodged its submission for seven percent, all of the employer organisations were being reported as being in a lather over that fretting enormously uh, because it would um, uh, uh, open the inflation bottle. It would it would drive inflation upwards. Do you think that the ma- mainstream media newspapers, those people, uh, when uh, you know they say a lather, that they're not actually reporting news, they're actually, or responses, they're actually just spreading gossip? Oh, no, I th- no, to be fair, I think it's better than that, actually. It varies enormously. I think there is the sort of tabloid reporting of it all, which, uh, of course, is agitational and propaganda uh, put together on be- for the employers. That's in the tabloids. But there are serious economic commentators who are producing quite good descriptions. I wouldn't say their analysis is very good, it's all over the place. But they're quite decent descriptions about what's going on. So the writers in the, uh, particularly uh, in The Guardian and uh, The New Daily and in uh, 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 the other mainstream media, are uh, the ABC commentators, they're doing quite good descriptive uh, 
uh, work, but uh, analytically they tend to fall a little bit short, in my view. Um, the, so there is some good information available at those sources, and that's a little bit more responsible. So and tell, even, give me an idea of your analysis of the situation. Well, uh, I, I think the uh, the ACT's word for its claim is uh, own words is that it's a responsible claim, and uh, over the decades I've always learned uh, I've gradually learned that's one of the worst words in the union movement to be responsible. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in, in any case, well, better than reform, and it's the ACTU is the only organisation, apart from, at the moment, three particular unions who have also made submissions, is the only organisation fighting for the needs of the low-paid. ACOS have made a submission as well, and I haven't yet studied that to see what they're saying. So I think there's some interesting um, points in the ACTU submission that perhaps we could sort of maybe just touch on for a little while now. Keeping in mind, the first thing is that their submission really does take gender equality, the needs of working women and their families, really seriously. And I'm looking forward to really studying it very closely and being able to talk about it. I have done a preliminary discussion about it in my blog site, and um, if people want to see that, that overview of what the change to the law might mean. Uh, it's available at my blog. But uh, some of the important points in the ACTU submission in that light um, is that they point out and they prove that past decisions, the inadequacy of past decisions has been based on accepting really inaccurate forecasts about wages and inflation from the Reserve Bank and from the Treasury. So the Fair Work Commission, logically in a way, looks at what the Reserve Bank and the Treasury say is going to be, is what's going to happen to inflation and wages in the years ahead. And they get it wrong badly almost every time mm. and yet the Fair Work Commission continues to use them as an indicator of what their decision ought to be. And the ACT does a good job of demolishing that in my first impression read. Yep. Um, the other thing they point out is that we're talking about these industries in which women and therefore gender segregation is a big problem and yep. it's a major causal factor of uh, not just not just gender inequality but poverty um, the uh, the national if you put the national minimum wage at the present time is sitting at 53.6 percent that is nearly se oh, sorry 6.4 percent below the poverty line oh God that's the national minimum wage. That's now, just that, outrageous. Yeah. And six out of the 14 industry sectors at their lowest rate have uh, uh, their, their, their minimum wage in those industry six sectors is below that poverty line. 
Oh, right? the lucky they country. Are, they are industries which are mainly women. So what we have is we have more poverty happening in Australian society, and a recent ACOS uh, report established that. Mm, yep. Now, and a part of the reason for that is the very low incomes, uh, 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 the predominance of really low income, and that means that flows into the daily life of women more than men and their children. And their children. The report shows. So... Uh, the ACTU does, I think, at first, at first read, a really good job of highlighting that. Um, I think we've talked a bit about how many people are affected by the decision um, across all industries directly. That is, those on the award rates in their, in their, in their job, in their occupations, is around 22, 23%. Um, but it is much, much higher in those industries in which there is a predominance of working women. Um, so it is a very important period for us because we can... Uh, I mean, listeners who are in the union movement, if you are not on top of what is happening in the annual wage review, let me be really direct. You are not serious about wages solidarity. We have a choice in our movement. We've always had it. Should wage bargaining be based upon competitive relationships between employers and workers? Or should we, in our movement, pursue a wages solidarity strategy? Right now, we are not. We are, we are accepting a wages strategy that is based upon competition through workers, and that's called enterprise bargaining. We have to dig ourselves out of that hole and take a historically more responsible position to each other of a wages solidarity approach. And the starting point must mean tackling what goes on in the annual wage review, including its broken rules. When do they? Um, when does the results of the uh, adjudication happen? Uh, the way it unfolds is that the commission uh, must make its decision by uh, uh, in in mid in, in, by around mid June, so that. Whatever the increase is, employers can put it into the first pay packets that come in uh, in the financial year, starting July 1. So okay. they must make their decision in time, and that means practically by around early to mid-June. And there are other steps to unfold. I mean, this it's, it's, it's economists at 10 paces, <laughs> the strategy. Mm. There's no campaign. There might be, you know, little protest of outrage uh, demonstrations here and there that we should join in on and all that sort of stuff. But they will be more symbolic than effective, in my view, as they have been in the past. Important, nevertheless. But the next step is that in about a month from now, uh, uh, the parties uh, uh, the, is the deadline for uh, 
replies from any party to what they have read from other submissions. So first submissions are in, Mm -hmm. and there's a month for anyone to reply to what the others have said. And then that we have the budget, and there's two or three weeks after that, there is a a third uh, submissions that uh, take into account what happened in the budget. So people can adapt their claim if they wish to, to make it higher or lower or whatever, Mm -hmm. taking into account what happens in the budget. And mixed in with that, the the parties have to apply or notify that they wish to be consulted. And that will happen somewhere in late May. Consultation is where the economists get up face-to-face, either through a Zoom or for real, uh, and tell the Commission why they are claiming what they are claiming. So it's all very polite. Yep. All very, you know... No blood on the floor. There's no... At the moment, the level of struggle is reduced to economists at 10 paces, and the theory is that the best way to win wage increases is to have the whole thing done to the working class rather than the working class taking charge of the situation with a campaign. Okay. Thank you very much, Don, and we will hope that you will keep up us abreast of what happens. Yeah, and people can do that themselves. The Fair Work Commission is required to publish everything, and it does do that. It's, you know, it's, uh, as I said, union activists amongst, amongst us must take this seriously. Otherwise, you are into competitive wage bargaining, which is a dead end for working people. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Don. All the best to everybody. Bye. That was Don Sutherland talking about the importance of the annual wage review. Uh, Today we heard from Gavin McFazen, Australian Conservation Foundation Climate Change and Clean Program Manager. (laughs) I did it without even a hiccup. Uh, about the uh, agreement uh, between the uh, Greens leader, uh, Adam Bent, and uh, the Labor Climate Action Minister. No, his name is not that. His his name is Climate Action Minister Chris... No, it's Climate Change Minister uh, Chris Bowen. There's no action in that. No action in that. Anyway, moving right along, uh, we talked to Dr Jarrah Hicks about the suspension of logging bulga forest, old growth um, forest, and uh, after the uh, New South Wales election, uh, that's a watching brief. This is the week that was, and of course, John Sutherland. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Current, and we're going to go out with in. Emma Donovan, who is actually going to be in town uh, at the Arts Centre doing a couple of gigs. You should look her up. She is a national treasure. And this one is called Caught Up in a Situation. This memory seems to be haunting me And it kind of makes me shiver I have to quickly Recap and think deep about 
wasn't anything there Keep keeping on And why can't they just be left behind? I still find myself questioning For is there any reason for this? I'm caught up in that situation I'm caught up in that situation Solidarity Salon. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.